are listening to the Pax Palestine podcast, a podcast that features interviews with some of the local Palestinian partners of Pax, a peace organization based in the Netherlands. Pax works together with committed citizens and partners to protect civilians against acts of war, to end armed violence and to build a just peace. In Palestine, Pax supports local partners in building resilient communities, promoting human security and equality in the political, cultural and social domain, and in fighting the injustices resulting from the protracted occupation. My name is Crystal and I'm your host. I am a Dutch citizen living in Palestine with my Palestinian husband and two children. Besides running a cafe and a bar in Bethlehem, I produce a weekly podcast called Stories from Palestine. For Pax, I produced this special trilogy of interviews with the local partners that Pax supports. This is the first episode of The Three, an interview with Jack and Annelise about the EAPPI program. But before we start, here's a very brief introduction on the situation in Palestine. In 1947, the United Nations accepted Resolution 181, the so-called Partition Plan. This plan proposed a Jewish state and a Palestinian state. Neither the Zionist movement nor the Palestinians agreed on the proposed plan, and in 1948, Zionist militias attacked over 500 Palestinian villages and cities and forcibly displaced an estimated number of 750,000 Palestinians. David Ben-Gurion announced the creation of the State of Israel, and the West Bank came under Jordanian and the Gaza Strip under Egyptian rule. In 1967, Israel military occupied the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights from Syria, and the Sinai from Egypt. The latter was later returned to Egypt in a peace treaty. Since 1967, the Palestinians in the West Bank live under Israel's military rule. There are about 2 million Palestinians in Gaza Strip, 3 million in the West Bank, 2 million in Israel itself, and another estimated 5 million Palestinian refugees in other countries. These episodes of the Pax Palestine podcast talk about current developments and focus on the work of some of the partners of Pax in Jerusalem and in the West Bank, where daily life of Palestinians is influenced by military orders and restrictions of movement. And with this in mind, let's hear from Jack and Annelies about the work of the EAPPI. So, Jack, thank you very much for being available for today's podcast episode. Hi, Kristen. Thank you for having me. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background? So, my name is Jack Monayer. I'm 31 years old. I'm from Jerusalem. 
I'm half English and I'm half Palestinian Christian with an Israeli passport. So I'm an Israeli citizen, but my heritage is Palestinian. You work for the World Council of Churches. We are going to speak about the EAPPI, the Ecumenical Accompaniment Program in Palestine and Israel. But before we do that, what is the World Council of Churches? So the World Council of Churches is a fellowship of 350 different churches from 110 countries, which all come together under this sort of fellowship network. And their goal is basically to promote unity amongst the different denominations. So you have Orthodox churches, you have Baptist churches, Anglican churches, and also to serve needs of the community. And EAPPI is one of the needs here uh, for the Palestinian churches. I have to admit that until I came to Palestine myself, I always thought that all Palestinians were Muslims. And then when I came here, I obviously met a lot of Palestinian Christians. I remember that there was a friend, Christian Palestinian friend, who told me that he often had to explain that the Christians here did not convert to Christianity, but that Christianity started here with the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and the ministry of Jesus here in Palestine. Can you maybe say a little bit more about the churches here, the amount of churches, the different denominations, and maybe the geographic concentration of Christians in Palestine? Sure. I think that although Palestinian Christians are a minority, I think that it's not an accident that people don't hear about Palestinian Christians. I think it's within certain people's interest to keep this image of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as a West versus Islam type of narrative, which we, the Palestinian Christians, provide a problem for people like that, because we show that it's not quite as simple as that. It's not a Star Wars film of us versus them. And so I think that it's not an accident that many people don't hear about Palestinian Christians. Today, the Palestinian Christians, both on the Israeli side and within the Palestinian territories, constitutes under 2% of the populations. Uh, within the West Bank, most of the Palestinian Christians live in Ramallah and Bethlehem, although there are others in smaller villages as a minority in places like Nablus. In Israel, they're spread across, of course, Haifa, the Galilee, Nazareth, lots of the uh, areas in the north, also Jaffa. And then, of course, we have Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, which has a couple thousand Palestinian Christians. There are many different churches here. The biggest church is the Greek Orthodox Church, with about 50% of all Palestinians belonging to the Greek Orthodox Church. Then you have the Catholic Church, and then you have a lot of other sub-churches, including the Protestant ones. And what denomination are you belonging to? My father is Greek Orthodox. My mother is Anglican. I was raised more in the Protestant tradition, and I got married in a Lutheran church. So I'm a little bit of everything, I think. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> wow. That would be a whole other interesting episode about identity. <laughs> yeah. Sure. But today we're talking about the Ecumenical Accompaniment Program in Palestine and Israel. It's a long name. We always abbreviate it to EAPPI, which is still quite a long abbreviation. I've had the pleasure to meet several people who volunteered for the EAPPI in the last 10 years that I've lived here. This program is supported by Pax in the Netherlands, for whom we are making this podcast. Can you explain what is EAPPI? Yeah, as you said, it's a bit of a mouthful. I think this is because church leaders and theologians picked the title, which explains its long, uh, its long title. <laughs> yeah. EAPPI basically was a call coming from the Palestinian heads of churches, 
So the different bishops here in Jerusalem who sent a letter out to the World Council of Churches in 2002, so right in the middle of the Second Intifada, where they called for a response from the global church. And they wanted to have people come here to be witnesses of what was going on. And so the churches and the World Council of Churches organized a number of international observers to come and mostly stand initially at checkpoints. They're there to speak to people, to see what's going on. And what was quickly discovered is that when you had internationals present, just standing there and watching at what was going on at the key checkpoints, the level of harassment by the Israeli military was reduced significantly. Although it was still a difficult situation, the pressure was eased somewhat from the local population. And so then this program has been developed to cover a number of different areas using the same method. That if you have international observers who are neutral, who abide by humanitarian standards, that the levels of violence, the levels of harassment are reduced in the conflict, mostly by the Israeli military being the occupying power and by the Israeli settlers within the West Bank as well. So today, EAPPI, well, outside of Corona, would have an average of about 22 people who would come. They would be trained in their home countries. They would be trained again here in Jerusalem. And they would go out to a number of different areas around the West Bank. And these accompaniers will do anything from walking kids to school through difficult checkpoints where their parents may not be allowed to pass with them or they might have to go to work through a different checkpoint. And so the children will feel safer if they have someone who's accompanying them. We will accompany shepherds if they take their flocks out to fields next to settlements. Many times if settlers will see that shepherds have international observers with them, they will not attack the shepherds and their sheep. And so there's a variety of activities like this that the accompaniers do. How do the settlers and the soldiers know that these people are part of this kind of program? Our internationals have sort of vests identifying them as international observers. The settlers and soldiers, in theory, could cause a lot of harassment for these internationals. But something special about this program is that after the internationals have been here to observe, we call them EAs, so after the EAs have been here to observe and witness, they go home and share the story of the people that they have been accompanying with. And so within this conflict, there is a strong interest from every side to maintain a good image to the international community. And therefore, internationals are not likely to be harassed and almost never harassed physically, at least in our program. And this, I think, is a unique method of doing observation. There are other great observing initiatives. This one is also based not only in human rights and international law, but also in theology. In other words, the model that was built in 2002 said that when Jesus was here in the land, he would accompany people. He would walk shoulder to shoulder with them and be in solidarity with humanity. And this is how we believe is the best way to be in solidarity with the oppressed, is to walk with them in their daily lives and then share their stories to our different circles once we return home. Is that something that people are expected to do or when they sign up to be a volunteer in this program, 
that they also commit to sharing the information and the experiences that they went through. So it's understood to be perhaps even the most important part of the program is to share the stories, a little bit like I suppose you're doing, uh, Crystal. And the level of activity is up to that individual, but it's understood to be that whatever we call protective presence, whatever protective presence that internationals provide here doesn't solve the conflict. It's an alleviation of pressure at best. So the idea is to change the minds, to change the narrative that is being spoken of internationally in order to create a long-term solution. The experience with the APPI, can that also be used in other ways to pressure on maybe decision makers or politicians? Sure. So we have people being sent from around 18 different countries and each country will have a different approach a different policy towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So some people might just influence their immediate circles. Some people might target their churches, who might be very supportive, for example, of one side. And others will campaign and lobby to their members of parliament, to, as you said, different stakeholders, to the EU, to change their approach, to comply with international law, and to fulfill their obligations. And if we look at the neighbors, like the Israeli civilians, people that live here, do you feel that they have any idea about what is happening on these checkpoints or what is going on close to these settlements with Palestinian farmers who are being harassed by the settlers? Is that something that people are aware of? I think that the vast majority are not aware. And I think that many of them don't want to be aware or that there's a justification for why the situation is that it is. So, for example, in one checkpoint that we monitor in the south of the West Bank, when people are rejected from going through the checkpoint, we will document why they were rejected. I'll just give a quick example. One person was rejected because their shoes were too white or because they were carrying too much food in their bag. And I think the daily grind, the daily pressure that people feel is largely unknown to the majority of Israeli public. And does this program also want to communicate this to the Israelis, or is that not at all part of what the World Council of Churches does? It's not the main goal. I think that there are many Israeli human rights organizations and initiatives that are better placed to do that, but it is part of our program. So, for example, we work with many Israeli organizations. It's part of our program to partner with different organizations on the ground, Israeli and Palestinian. So Mahsam Watch, Yeshdin, Breaking the Silence, B'Tselem, Rabbis for Human Rights. These are the type of organizations that we will share information with, that we will point people to. And part of the EA experience here is also to be exposed to the Israeli side, which includes meeting these organizations. Uh, we call it supporting local peacemakers. So anyone that is supporting non-violence and human rights, and a just solution we want to work with, or at least communicate with. And so part of the EA experience is not only providing protective presence and advocating, it's also supporting groups like B'Tselem and others that try and raise awareness on the Israeli side. Jack, when I was young, we used to attend a church that was giving money to Israel. We would have at the end of our church service donations, and very often they were collecting money for Israel. And there was never any explanation on what that money was going to, but the people were just very supportive of Israel. And later on in my life, I understood 
that this is what we call Christian Zionism. I was just wondering, can you explain that for people who don't understand maybe the concept of Christian Zionism? And also, how, as the World Council of Churches, do you deal with that, that there are church groups that are supporting Israel that is oppressing, in the same time, Palestinian Christians? This is a really good question. Christian Zionism is actually a, a relatively speaking in church history, a new phenomenon. In other words, this idea of returning Jews back to Israel and establishing a state for them only has been over the past 150 years, 200 years, maybe even less. Christian Zionism started in the United Kingdom, which came hand in hand with colonialism and empire. So the British saw themselves as being part of fulfilling this destiny of not only Britain, but of the Christian people. And there's a certain interpretation, a very literal interpretation of scriptures, which says that if we do one, two, three, Jesus will return for his second coming, the end times will come, so the apocalypse as it was, and we will be sort of redeemed, uh, those that are the loyal followers. And so when this was developed, it was developed with very little consideration for the population that was living here. The Palestinians, in many early Christian Zionist records, were considered savages. They were considered beneath sort of the European uh, powers. And therefore, it's almost like a complete self-centered way of viewing it. Since then, it has developed into something which the evangelical church in particular has embraced more strongly with what I would say is American imperialism. So many Christian Zionists will say that we need to support Israel and the Jews to return to the land. This will somehow trigger end-time events, and we will get raptured up to the sky. So this is, generally speaking, Christian Zionism. And I think it's very frustrating for Palestinian Christians who take their faith seriously, and for the church leaders here, who, when you have had such an ancient community of Christians who have been taking care of the holy sites, who have been living faithfully in this land for 2,000 years, to then have to meet someone who says, well, this place is not for you, and that you are an obstacle to you know, the fulfillment of our interpretation of prophecy. Just give you a quick example. When I was 18 and I left home for the first time, I met an American person, and he told me that I am slowing down the return of Jesus by living here, and that I should leave my home so I could make up some more space for Jewish people to come from overseas. And so I think that this program doesn't attempt to answer the theological questions that Christian Zionism raises, in the sense that EAPPI and the World Council of Churches don't battle over the theological interpretation, but we say something very simple. The Bible speaks about mercy, about justice, about reconciliation, and we have to find a practical way of implementing that. And this is what we believe is in line with international law and human rights. Therefore, our answer to this is to bring people here to accompany, to be in solidarity, to advocate for the suffering that people witness here. And so I think that Christian Zionism today is one of the biggest obstacles to a solution for this conflict. You have, in particular, the United States, a very strong Christian Zionist lobby, the biggest lobby in the United States. 
And so we have to raise awareness of the reality of what's going on here and not the myths, not the lies, the twisted narratives that have been spread. If people were interested to become a volunteer for this program, how would they go about it? How do they apply? How do they get trained? Because you need to know where you're going and what's going on and what is expected of you. That's a question. And do you need to be a committed Christian in order to apply for the EAPPI program? So I'll answer the second question first. Most of the people who participate in our program, I would describe as non-religious or even atheists. As long as you are happy to come along with a program that is Christian-based, and if you are willing to hold the same principles uh, of international law and human rights, then everybody is welcome. We have also people from other faiths, Muslims and Jews, who have also participated in the program. So there's no need to necessarily be Christian. Each country has a different coordinating team. Some of them are through churches, some of them are through organizations, and some of it is through a loose volunteer of individuals. So I would recommend going to the EAPPI website, which has the contact details for different countries where people can find out because how, a, for example, a British person is recruited is different from how an Argentinian person is recruited. It is quite a professional program in the sense that it does require training. It's not simply packing your bag and coming. We need people to abide by humanitarian standards. We are here also to document human rights violations when they take place. And so our expectation is quite high. And so there is an application process, which, again, each country does in its own way. And in the last year, because of COVID-19 pandemic, I guess that there were no EAPPI volunteers because I know that Israel did not really allow anybody into the country. I've been stuck myself for the last year and I guess you haven't traveled either. So did the fact that there were no EAPPI observers, how did that affect Palestinians on the checkpoints, Palestinians that used to have this protection? Hugely. It's been, uh, COVID-19 has been a disaster everywhere, but in particular the Palestinian community. Because we have seen, according to the UN statistics, a rise in settler harassment since internationals have been absent on the ground. This isn't just EAPPI, there's others, but specifically EAPPI. We've seen communities facing all sorts of uh, violence, of vandalism. Uh, we just had the olive harvest in October, November. There was high levels of harassment. EAPPI would normally have groups accompany Palestinians as they pick their olives. We were not able to do it this year. And so if you take aside just for a moment the health and economic crisis, there's also the crisis of the occupation, where we would normally be able to support. There are certain communities that will not feel comfortable sending their children to school unless you have internationals there to accompany and to observe. We have not been able to do that. So it's been very difficult for many of the communities which we have still kept in touch with uh, remotely throughout this pandemic. If I just give another quick example, for the education accompaniment that we do, 50% of the boys have reported, you know, when we've done our sort of surveys and research, that there is a reduction in violence and harassment when we are there. And 100% of the girls have recorded that they feel safer and that there's a reduction in harassment. 
So these types of things have not been able to happen. Uh, our sort of support has not been able to happen, but we are currently making plans for a return. Now that the vaccine is starting to go around, we're hoping that the world will start to open up in 2021 and that we can re resume our work here in Israel and Palestine. Thank you, Jack. We will post the link to EAPPI on the show notes of the podcast so people can go to the website and learn more. And I want to thank you for your time and wish you really all the best blessings for all the work you're doing. And let's hope that sooner than later, EAPPI can fully start its program again with people coming from abroad, accompanying the children, accompanying the people going through the checkpoints and actually hoping that it won't be necessary anymore. Thank you. Thank you. We will be happy when we don't need to stand at checkpoints and accompany children to school as well. And we can perhaps invest in a different area or in a different type of project. And I also want to thank you, Crystal, for taking the time to ask about the program and to share the voices of people here on the ground. I think it's very, very important and very much needed. So a lot of appreciation from our side as well. Annelies, welcome and thank you for being part of this podcast. It's a little bit funny for us because you are also Dutch from Holland and so am I, but we are requested by Pax to do the podcast in English. So we will continue in English so that everybody who's listening to the podcast can understand what we're talking about. I just came over the phone with Jack and we talked about the EAPPI program and you worked for the EAPPI in Jerusalem. Can you introduce yourself a little bit? Who are you and what was your work and what was your role with the EAPPI? Thank you for the invitation. I was in Jerusalem for three years. Actually, I just came back to the Netherlands. My contract with EAPPI will end soon. And I was team facilitator for the program. My main task was to take care of the um, accompaniers that came to the country every three months to take care of their well-being and to support them during their staying. Can you also say a little bit about your background? What did you study and who are you? I studied art therapy. That's a long time ago. And after that, I also studied child psychology. I was a bit off the way, but on the other hand, it was always my purpose to work in development aid or for human rights, children rights. I had that in mind during my studies. So working for EAPPI was a privilege for me to do actually what I really wanted to do. Also to be in the Middle East, which is a special connection for me. I was in Israel 20 years ago, first time with my uncle and my aunt. We made a road trip and I think I got a strong feeling with this first trip outside of Europe with the food, the smell, the people, the climate, everything about it. It grabbed me and made me come back a couple of times. And how did you end up with the EAPPI? How did that happen? Because I was looking for work abroad, development aid work. I saw a vacancy for EAPPI as an EA, which was then under the wings of Church in Action in the Netherlands. They seconded me to Palestine, Israel to do the work as an accompanier. 
for three months. That was in 2014. So that's where I got to know the program, also know the job or the position of a team facilitator. And I thought, okay, that's something that would suit me, that I would like to do. So I applied once the position was open. Can you tell a little bit more about your time as an EI? You were in the field. Did you actually stand on checkpoints as an observer? Did you accompany children? Where were you based? And what was that like? I was based in Yanun, which is a really tiny little village between Nablus and Ramallah. Most people, locals, don't know about Yanun at all. At that time, there were 80 people living there, and most of them were the children. Very small, but surrounded by settlements. It's the village where the program actually started because the villagers had to flee their village and ask for international help. Together with the call from the local churches, the EAPPI program started. So I was based there. I enjoyed it a lot because it was so rural and so back to basic. And that really suits me. Yeah, I enjoyed the way of living the self-sufficient way of living. But most of the time we were out of Yanun. One of our tasks was to stay there. One of us would always stay there. And the ones that were not staying in Yanun would go out to do school runs. It's for protective presence to stay with the children to observe, but also to accompany the children on their way to school. In that area, soldiers would always be very close to the schools and harass children when we were not there. But when we were there as international presence, the children could walk to school quietly. That was one of the main tasks, but also we did a lot of incident reporting where we would go after an incident happened, we would go and make a report which are sent to international organizations that also operate in Israel-Palestine. We would also show solidarity to the local Christians in Nablus. So we would go to church on Sundays and to spend time with them and to show our faces and show support. What kind of behavior are we talking about when soldiers are going around the schools of children? What do they do to harass the children? It could be just by standing, just being present, not doing nothing, but just being there makes children very nervous. They could stand in the way of the children so that children have to pass them, like almost touching them to pass the road. It depends where you are in the West Bank. So the school runs up north were a bit different than, for example, when you look in Hebron. In Hebron, the children are really, they get checked in a checkpoint. They're getting searched, body searched, their backs are searched, but they also prevented from going to school. They make the children nervous and stressed. And of course, education is very important for children. There are also incidents where settlers would come to schools and attack schools and then soldiers would interfere, but that can be with tear gas or sound bombs. So this causes stress, but also the school will not continue the day. Teachers are focused more on stress reduction than on continuing their program. Also, child arrest, by the way, is one of the things that happens to children that go to school. Does that mean that some of the, the EI volunteers would actually witness that? Especially in Hebron, EAs would witness this. It's one of the most 
challenging incidents for EAs to report. Doesn't matter if they were present or if they hear the story from a second hand is child detention and house demolitions. Those are the most intense emotional stories that they hear. We also have to keep in mind that all the EAs that come to Israel-Palestine, most of them are not used to these circumstances. Most of them are from quite safe countries. There are also EAs that are from less safe countries. They're used to certain things a bit more, but they also share that they find it difficult to deal with the injustice. House demolitions and child detention, child arrest are the most difficult incidents for them. And what are the instructions that are given to these observers? What do you do when you observe things like that, when you observe misbehavior by Israeli soldiers or by settlers? It's in the word accompanier already. They accompany and they observe, so they never interfere. This is frustrating that you can't do anything. So you're there, you're witnessing, you can't do anything. That's for EAs that are in the field witnessing incidents, but it's also when you visit families and you report and that's it. You can't really change the situation. At that moment, or in that case, the biggest job of the EAs is when they come back home in their country and they share their stories, what they've seen, what they witnessed, what they heard when they do their advocacy. And I think that's the most powerful part of EAPPI program is that people go back and that's where the job starts, actually. That's where they do what they're meant to do. That's where they can make a change or that's where they can do something. What is it that you can do with your stories other than share it with other people? If we really want to make a change, what kind of efforts do you need to make? Who do you talk to in order to get really to decision makers? EAs reach out to their governments to try to make a change in their policies or in their stance or to at least share their stories and create awareness of what is actually happening. A lot of EAs will write stories in newspapers to reach a broader group of people. In Europe, we meet in Brussels once a year where a lot of former EAs come and make appointments with the parliamentarians in Brussels. And what would you say that the Palestinians that you spoke to, that you lived with also when you lived in Yanun, how do they see these accompaniers? How do they experience your presence with them in their village? As very important in general, appreciation for their accompaniments, but also they share the frustrations that the EAs have themselves is that, what are you doing? Like, you're not really doing something. We're still living under occupation. So you're not ending the occupation at this very moment. So what are, you know, things are getting worse. So we don't need you. These stories are there as well. And as I said, like, it's the same frustration as what, what the EA sometimes experience. But what the EA and also 
I think locals don't always see is all the seeds that are planted once the EAs come back home in their countries. The more EAs who share their story, the more awareness rises in the world. I remember that 12 years ago, which was the first time when I came here, there was definitely not that much knowledge about the reality of life for Palestinians. We knew a lot about the history of the Jewish people. We knew a lot about how Israel was defending itself against Arab aggression. But what happened to the Palestinians, there wasn't much knowledge. And I think that over the past 12 years, because of such programs, we can see that people are starting to become more aware of that. So that is definitely very important. How many locations are there? Where does the PPI program operate? Six locations. Can you mention them? It's in Tulkerem, Jericho, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Hebron, South Hebron Hills. And in Bethlehem, it is here on the main checkpoint, the one that I cross daily to reach Bethlehem. Yes. What is the role of EAPPI there on this checkpoint? One of the things is the accompaniment for the children or protective presence for children that go to school. Incident reporting, reporting outposts. A big threat for Bethlehem is that they are more and more surrounded by settlements. We cover also reporting how the developments of settlements are and land grabbing. The EAs also cover the checkpoints where they monitor access to worship, but also access to work. Whenever the checkpoint is closed, we have numbers that they can call. They can call with Israelis to try to open the checkpoint. The same for the humanitarian line. Whenever the humanitarian line is closed, they try to open it by calling the Israelis. Also, when people are suddenly on a blacklist and they cannot enter Israel anymore, we try to help them with connecting them to the right organizations. So there's a lot of Israeli peace organizations that we cooperate with and they can do more practical help. We connect the Palestinian locals to those Israeli organizations so that they can actually give the practical support that they need. So these things we cannot do, but we are in between. Can you describe for people who have no clue what a checkpoint looks like, what the Bethlehem checkpoint looks like, for example? Well, they recently changed it, I think two years ago. It was, well, can I say upgraded? <laughs> it looks more... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> modernized, organized, an organized checkpoint. Uh, with upgraded, maybe I mean like when you as a tourist would now travel through a checkpoint walking, it looks more like passing the airport terminal which says like nice pictures, welcome to Israel and welcome to the Bethlehem crossing, go in peace. It looks like almost normal because at the airport you also get your bags checked, right? Can you describe the process? A Palestinian comes from Bethlehem and has a permit to go to Jerusalem then what does he have to pass in order to reach the bus to Jerusalem? Our EAs, they monitor in the early mornings, which is like four or five o'clock in the morning, because that's when all the workers have to cross. And they cross so early because it can take like two hours to cross on that time of the day. The workers, there are many of them that go in once. And if they're unlucky, there's not so many lines open, which creates big queues. 
they walk through like in a labyrinth. The first check is with the backs. So you have your back checked and your body checked. So they have to walk through the detection gates. Then once you're through, they have their IDs checked recently or also like since two years, I think they have this on fingerprints, which can cause problems for workers because if you work with your hands, your fingerprint doesn't always work. There's always one soldier sitting and checking IDs in case the fingerprint doesn't work. Above the labyrinth, there's also kind of a bridge where the soldiers can look from above down on what is happening on the ground. So there's always soldiers walking there. So Bethlehem, Jerusalem is like six kilometers, but it can take two hours if you're unlucky with the checkpoints. If it's closed, you just have to wait for who knows how long. This is one of the things you never know for how long will it be closed. And the big queues in the morning, it's hard to imagine how how bad it is. And you feel it more once you're there when it's so busy, I find. So you can see pictures, you can see video footage, but when you're really there, seeing how many people and how much they push and how... Then you realize like how difficult it must be to do this every morning to go to your job. In order to wait in line there, they made these cages. It's like you're caged in, in between fences... And people are pushing each other up until they reach the first turnstile and for the first time to show their ID card and to cross into the terminal. And when you watch it, it is almost like you're seeing animals, like cattle. It's dehumanizing to watch it. Yeah. And you know that yeah, yeah, yeah. we live yeah. on the other side in Beitsafafa. And what we see every morning when I take the kids to school is those people that have passed through the checkpoint in the early morning, going through all of that, what you're describing now, and then they are waiting, hoping that somebody will pick them up for a day job. Because many of the people who have a working permit, they don't have a fixed job. So they are just standing there on the junction, hoping that somebody will come and tell them, oh, today I need a painter, or I need somebody to do some bricklaying or some other construction work. And then I look at them and I realize that I just woke up, had my coffee, put my kids in the car. It's 7.20. And these people have already been up since three o'clock waiting in that dehumanizing line to be checked and go through the checkpoint and then waiting. And then maybe they will never even get a job and they'll have to go home to their family without money and being humiliated for nothing. It must be hard if you are observing that day by day to keep being motivated. Did you find that with some of the observers or even with yourself? How did you keep motivating yourself? I have to say that working with the EAs, they are also motivated. So they're so eager to be there and to learn and to do what they're doing. They do have moments of demotivation because of the frustration of not being able to change the system. One of the things that I do is to look with them to how can you get yourself motivated again? So how do you stay healthy? I think if I look at the resilience of the Palestinians themselves, that gives you already so much 
power and motivation to see that mm. they've been able for so many decades to bear all this injustice and to still feel so connected to their land and to stand up for a better future for justice and equality that even if you yourself get demoralized, you just talk to Palestinians and you're like, no, there's no way of giving up. They're not going to leave, so they'll have to put up with it. And they are putting up with it. Yeah, I think Palestinians, they developed a coping mechanism to deal with this. And that's what we miss. First of all, it's not our struggle that makes it different, I think, to process it. But also because we never learned. We don't have the tools to cope with it. I've also realized that when I speak with my colleagues who are all locals, that they look at this incident different with maybe less frustration than how I look at it. So how I receive it. I feel more powerless. Like how, how on earth can this happen? Where they're like, this is how it is. This is what we live with. And what can we do? What can we do? Yeah, Shubit Nansawi, who are you all That's what I always <laughs> hear, yeah. I hope that people who are listening to the podcast would be inspired to somehow dig a little bit deeper into the reality of life under military occupation and what does that mean. And if there is any way they wanted to support the EAPPI program, do you have a suggestion? Well, I think then it's good to follow Pax their websites, because they will, once we have the corona period behind us, they will, I think, have more updates on EAPPI. So people can follow up on the work that's being done. And if people wanted to volunteer to be in EAPPI, they can contact whom? Also Pax. Pax is recruiting for EAs. Now let's hope that a lot of people will be inspired <laughs> to look into that option. Thank you very much, Annelies, for this interview. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to Pax Palestine Podcast, Episode 1. If you want to know more about the EAPPI and the work of Pax, you can go to the website paxforpeace.nl. You can find the link to the website in the show notes of this podcast. My name is Crystal, and you can find my weekly podcast, Stories from Palestine, on your favorite podcast player or on the website storiesfrompalestine.info. I hope you will tune in again next week for episode 2 about the Palestine Center for Peace and Democracy and the upcoming Palestinian elections. Music